Hello and welcome to South Asia Chat, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Nishant Rajiv, a research analyst at the Institute of South Asian Studies. Although the early use of unmanned aerial vehicle technology on the battlefield can be traced back to the 1980s, it is only in the 2010s that they found their way into the headlines. In recent years, drones have been brought under the spotlight due to their expanding use on the battlefield. For instance, Iranian General Qasem Soleimani was killed in a drone strike ordered by President Donald Trump in early 2020. Later, in October that same year, Azerbaijan extensively deployed Turkish drones to defeat Armenia in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. In keeping with these recent trends, the Indian military has also sought to acquire advanced drones to support its military operations. Joining me today to discuss the Indian military's quest to adopt and deploy drones is Dr. Yogesh Joshi, Research Fellow at ISAS NUS. India last year approved of a deal to procure 30 armed drones from the U.S. for a cost of nearly $3 billion. But this is just the latest development in the Indian military's use of drones. India has operated drones for nearly two decades now. So, Yogesh, my first question to you would be, what has driven India's interest in drones? And where does India's efforts to deploy, acquire and employ drone technology stand today? Uh, thanks, Nishan. Uh, thanks for having me on South Asia Chart, uh, you know, uh, uh, which is our flagship podcast event at ISAS. And thanks for talking to me on this very interesting and, uh, you know, developing subject in a sense. Uh, so what has driven India's interest? I think, as you rightly mentioned, it's first of all, you know, the technological evolution you know you every military every armed forces want to keep up uh, keep abreast with technological evolution you know if we remember india's first indigenous drone program in a sense or unmanned uh, you know aircraft systems as they say the rustam uh, was initially uh, the process started in 1980s uh, you know but the indigenous efforts didn't take us very far India first deployed drones in actually in Kashmir in early 1990s Israeli drones uh, for counterinsurgency, for surveillance and counterterrorism operations. But it first bought en masse uh, unmanned systems only in late 1990s, particularly the Israeli Heron 1 and the Searcher uh, UAVs in late 1990s. Uh, and these were again deployed mostly for surveillance reconnaissance, uh, you know, operations in a sense. Uh, but over a period of time, you also see that uh, the employment of drones, uh, as per you know, their military utility has also changed. For a long period of time, unmanned aerial vehicles were basically employed for surveillance and reconnaissance. Uh, but as you see, starting from uh, the American war on terror in Afghanistan, uh, you know, then their deployment in Iraq uh, and to many other places, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the latest revolution in a sense, or at least the practical, uh, you know, sh- display of what drones can do during the Azerbaijan-Armenian conflict. Uh, the military utility has changed in a sense from 
being force multipliers in terms of gathering intelligence, providing uh, targets, uh, you know, uh, more of, diff- in a sense, more in support role to actually becoming part and parcel of delivering, uh, you know, violence in a sense, uh, you know, which militaries are entitled to do or are supposed to do. Uh, and that has led to, you know, combat systems, unmanned combat systems. So if you see the trajectory of how uh, UAVs have been employed uh, in military tactics and strategy, you also see uh, that change uh, happening in the Indian context. Uh, so Indians have gone from basically acquiring, uh, uh, you know, several ISR drones like searchers, uh, like herons, uh, or indigenous ones like Rustams, Nishans, uh, Netras, Panchis, uh, to more combat drones. Uh, you know, now India, is, as you mentioned in your opening statement, India has signed a deal of the Reaper, uh, you know, combat drones for that matter. Uh, you know, India has also acquired the Harpies and the Harops. Uh, you know, the Harpies are anti-radar uh, you know, uh, combat UAVs, which basically target radar stations, uh, you know, to provide uh, some, to, to context, to, to establish air supremacy. Uh, the harpies are we what we call loitering munitions, uh, you know, which, which loiter in the battlefield and then attack a particular target. So they, these have been acquired from Israel. Uh, so India is moving from particularly using drones to, in terms of, uh, you know, its military utility in ISR, to more towards its 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 functionality in combat operations. So that's a trend which is easily visible. Uh, you know, the second important uh, thing which I would like to mention is that, uh, you know, there's a lot of effort today in a sense of developing uh, an indigenous ecosystem. Uh, maybe we'll touch upon it later, but, you know, uh, there's a lot of emphasis, at least the projects are underway, uh, you know, like uh, the Ghatak uh, drone, which the DRDO de- is developing, uh, you know, which is India's first stealth unmanned aerial vehicle, uh, you know, uh, similarly, the Hindustan Aeronautics Limited is doing something called CATS, which is combined armed teaming. Uh, aircraft teaming systems, which will basically team up with Indian uh, Indian fighter aircrafts like Tejas and, uh, you know, Jaguars to provide force multiplying effect in the air, uh, you know, and swarm uh, enemy targets in a sense. Uh, and then there are a number of private institutions, you know, private industry, uh, which is now helping the Indian Armed Forces to develop their unmanned aerial vehicle uh, capability. Uh, in January 2021, there was the first major deal with, uh, with a startup called Idea Forge, which is going to provide, uh, you know, the switch uh, micro uh, UAVs to the Indian Army for a $20 million deal, which was the first, uh, you know, uh, first participation by a private industry and Indian startup. So I think, you know, the landscape is changing not only in terms of India's Indian military is adjusting to 
uh, new functionalities, but also, uh, you know, in a sense of where these systems are going to come from. But having said that, you know, uh, given the ecosystem right now, uh, it will take a lot of time for India to kind of develop that ecosystem. So primarily, if you look at the military uh uh, you know, most of these UAVs would be imported. India is the thir- third largest importer of military UAVs in the world. Uh, so that will continue for the time being. Uh, but having said that, you know, one should also understand that the technological landscape has also changed in a sense that it's easy to produce these systems today. Uh, you know, and given the advances in artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, uh, in the coming of the 5G, uh, the applications of drones are much larger. Uh, you know, uh, th- those are basically expanding uh, into domains uh, which are far beyond the military. So, for example, you know, agriculture, it's being used actively in India for pest control, for soil monitoring, for soil erosion. Uh, if you remember, in last two years, there has been uh, they have been de- they have been employed they have been deployed to fight locust swarms uh, you know uh, so that is one there is they are being employed uh, for forestry and wildlife tiger preservation uh, they are fundamental to changing uh, you know demands for mobility mapping and monitoring whether it is you know ecological auditing town planning uh, for example, there is a scheme called Somitwa, uh, where drones are basically being used to uh, map rural property, um, you know, and villagers can each actually download their whole land holdings uh, through mobile once the drones have done uh, their job of mapping these rural properties. Uh, they are employed for disaster management. India deployed, uh, you know, uh, searchers and herons during the 2004 tsunami crisis, as well as the same drones were deployed during the Kedarnath crisis, the Kedarnath floods in 2013. Uh, You know, so the applications are are huge. They are being deployed for law and order. Uh, You know, so during uh, the COVID pandemic, the Delhi police deployed drones to, uh, to, to, to see that the containment zones are maintained. Uh, you know that the people are following rules and guidelines which are uh, which 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 were given for uh, you know containing the covid pandemic uh, the india's paramilitary forces have used drones for uh, for election security so to say particularly in maoist zones for that matter so they have a range of applications uh, and it has gone beyond the military so to say uh, and in some sense, uh, if one needs to understand, you know, one needs to put it in a bigger context because there's a lot of uh, dynamic interaction between the civilian applications and the military applications. And until and unless you develop that ecosystem where, you know, the same technologies can be used for both, you will not be able to harness, uh, you know, uh, the 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 many possibilities provided uh, by the commercial uh, usage of these technologies by the private players who are interested uh, both by 
business commerce and profits as well as use them for your own national security purposes so i think the larger factor over here is to see this ecosystem developing uh, and you see that happening you actually see the realization of this in india's policy or you know regulatory policy on drones so by if you look at the first guidelines in 2014 there was no commercial activity uh, you know which was allowed under the rules by the director general of civil aviation by 2018 new guidelines uh, kind of you know allowed limited commercial activity and by 2021 india was at the forefront of liberalization of drone technologies and their usage uh, you know so uh that also kind of comports with uh, the projected markets uh of uh, unmanned aerial vehicles uh you know aircraft systems uh particularly in india you know some project that by 2026 it gonna be a dollar 2 billion uh you know markets fiki the indian industry chamber of commerce in a sense projects a 30 billion dollar uh drone market and the indian government is also gung ho in making india drone hub in the world so i think you know there are number of uh number of factors which are coming together uh to kind of uh you know help us understand why uh you know the the drones have become so vital not only for the indian military uh but also the uh you know also for civilian applications but also the business climate in the country Uh, well thank you for that uh, very comprehensive overview and there's definitely a lot to unpack there but there's one point i want to touch upon which you said that the you mentioned that the landscape is changing due to the technological uh, developments and i think the landscape not only in india is changing but the landscape around india and its adversaries are also changing so china has been operating a pretty diverse drone fleet and pakistan has Uh, has been acquiring drones from china and uh, turkey as well and you see non state actors also using drones uh, quite a bit the houthi rebels have used it in uh, their conflicts with saudi arabia so um the question i want to pose to you here is that um what is the drone threat that india faces today from both its conventional and unconventional adversaries and how will this sort of impact the balance of military power if it does um going forward i think that's a, that's a central question uh for for thinking about drones in your military strategy you have to first of all understand the threats uh you know before uh you can actually think about how where drones fit in your military strategy uh i think for a long period of time drones were largely force multipliers in a sense uh that they provided intelligence they provided surveillance they provided you know easy ways to do reconnaissance uh, particularly in uh, in in terrains uh, where you know indian army is presently deployed which is largely hilly uh, you know mountainous rugged so to say so you know uh, that was the primary function and if that is the function that was largely defensive in nature one should also understand you know that any kind of military technology has to uh you know in a sense 
does provide both offensive and defensive advantages. Ultimately, it is uh, your military objectives which would define how those technologies will be used. And India's approach has been largely status quoist. Uh, you know, so if you're defending, if you're largely defending, if you're largely in a defensive uh, mode, then uh, probably the maximum, the, 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 the best use of drones had been in basically de- developing your ISR capabilities, uh, you know, in movement of troops, you know, whether even whether military CBMs are being observed or not in India, China case, particularly for that matter, uh, you know, so, uh, so. So that was largely the role of the drones for quite some time. Uh, but more and more you see in the Indian uh, Indian strategic community, particularly, you know, the use of drones by the U.S. in, uh, in its war on terror, particularly targeting terrorist, uh, you know, uh, 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 targets in, in, in both in Pakistan and Afghanistan as well as the recent Azerbaijan-Armenian conflict. Uh, you know, there is, there is a sense that drones can be used to deliver force and violence. Uh, now, I am a little skeptical about it in a sense that, first of all, we need to understand that more, if we take taking the cues from uh, the U.S. actions uh, in uh, in Afghanistan, Pakistan, or even in the Middle East, uh, you're talking about uncontested airspaces. Okay, uh, now in uncontested airspaces, it's very easy to use drones. Uh, you know, to deliver, uh, you know, violence in a sense. But it's not so in contested airspaces. Uh, so how you know? So the efficacy of drones uh, in contested airspaces is something which is uh, you know, which is which is which hasn't been proved yet. So that is that is one thing. The other thing is basically that, uh, in a sense, you know, many many have argued that you can use drones, in a sense, uh, to to reduce uh, your human loss. Okay, uh, but then again, the efficacy of drones in destroying a target, particularly in contested airspaces, and whether they are just a signal of escalation. Those are two very different things. Uh, You know, I still think that standoff capabilities are much more important. Now, coming to what can happen, and particularly with Pakistan and China, both are using drones, uh, but we haven't seen that capability where they where drones can basically inundate Indian defenses. Uh, you know, there is definitely uh, the threat of uh, of swarms, of drone swarms, you know, and all of that. But in the conventional battlefield, it is not Azerbaijan-Armenian example, you know, because that's a very lopsided, uh, lopsided example in a sense, particularly if you look at the Armenian air defenses. Uh, you know, which which are Cold War, which were Cold War vintage in a sense. Uh, you know, so it was there was no contest there, so to say. Uh, you know, so uh, uh, so in some sense, I still think that we haven't reached a stage uh, where drones could change the balance of military power, uh, and largely because you know, at the end of the day, 
uh, what is military power for? If you're looking at major changes in terms of territory, that is not going to happen in South Asia, particularly because nuclear weapons in some sense have frozen borders. You know, there cannot be any large exchange of territory by use of force. Uh, you know, that is something which doesn't really apply in the South Asian case, whether it is India, China or India, Pakistan. Uh, you know, uh, so what is left to is gray zone operations, you know, where uh, where drones can be used to swarm a particular target, you know, maybe force multiply, force, maybe used to target radar systems and other such, uh, you know, defensive uh, measures, particularly before an intrusive attack and all that. But that would open a can of escalation, which would be very, very difficult to contain. Uh, so I'm not sure whether how uh, revolutionary drones would be in the conventional battlefield uh, in the South Asian case, uh, because it's still still large. I, I would say the standoff capabilities like cruise missiles, for that matter, or ballistic missiles have far more functionality that compared to drones. So I would still see drones in a very uh, in, as as an advantage for defense rather than an advantage for offense. Uh, you know, given the current trajectory uh, of the of of the technology, but even hypersonic missiles in some sense are unmanned aircraft, unmanned air, aircrafts. You know, so that's a, so we are talking about you know what type you're talking about then becomes central to this question. You know, where those standoff capabilities can be used to inundate enemies' defenses. Uh, you know, and give a shock therapy, so to say. Uh, but then whether hypersonic missiles are considered to be drones, uh, you know, uh, people might be divided on that. Uh, so I think that that is that is something which we need to kind of uh, keep, uh, you know, keep in mind. Uh, I think there's much more cap there's much more concern on subconventional level. And you see that happening on India, Pakistan border, particularly, you know, uh, and we saw a major major incident in the Jammu airbase in 2021 where armed drones uh, were used to, uh, you know, drop explosives on, uh, you know, kamikaze style on uh, an air force base in India's uh, Jammu province. Now, that is an issue, uh, you know, and that is uh, in some sense continuation of drone activities across the border which are used to smuggle drugs to smuggle guns you know to smuggle explosives to help uh, uh, terrorist elements not only in Jammu and Kashmir but also in Punjab for that matter uh, you know so how do you deal with that uh, and the particular problem basically is that there are no return addresses in a sense even if you can you know uh, you can trace the origins of these drones and all that it's very difficult to pinpoint and particularly against non-state actors which you know an adversary like pakistan has never owned up to you know so if you don't up own up human elements uh, you know how difficult it is to you know how difficult it is to own up to you know drones for that matter so that's that's a major issue, and therefore anti-drone capabilities would become extremely important 
um, you know, for for the Indian military. And that's what you see, you know, a lot uh, of police forces, the border security force, the Indian military is developing anti-drone capabilities, whether it is lasers, whether it is, uh, you know, uh, jamming capabilities, or whether it is kinetic uh, action against these drones. Uh, you know, the Indian Navy um, has actually acquired some of the smash rifles, which are, which can actually target drones, so to say, uh, you know, uh, but target but targeting drones is also extremely difficult because they have very they have small inter radar intersection uh you know uh, and and their size uh, uh, and speed basically you know militates against identification detection identification and targeting so i think at the subconventional level india has a lot uh, you know, a uh, lot to think about because at the end of the day, you know, these, in some sense, these are cheap technologies, particularly the way drones are being built today, uh, you know, and if they are successful in uh, pinpricking, uh, you know, uh, the Indian forces in uh, particularly in insurgency hit areas uh, like uh, German Kashmir and, you know, not insurgency hit area right now, but has a potential in a sense in Punjab, then you have uh, really, uh, you know, an issue at hand. Uh, also because it, you, your state of mind regarding insurgencies and how they are conducted needs to be changed. Uh, because, you know, most of, most of your counterinsurgency strategy is against human elements. So you create a wall, you create a barbed wire, you have all kinds of CCTV coverage, ISR capabilities to track movement of insurgents, uh, you know, so, uh, but not so much against drones, so to say. So, you know, there's a lot of change which needs to be, you know, inculcated, not only in terms of strategy tactics, but also in terms of training, you know, of your human resources, how to tackle these, uh, these illicit activities across the border. So I think at the subconventional level, uh, you know, there's a lot more uh, to be worried about than at the conventional level, particularly at the level of offensive conventional capabilities. I want to talk about a little bit about that offensive uh, conventional capabilities, because what we've seen, I think, under the Modi administration has been a willingness to use force. Uh, against in retaliation to terrorist attacks and it's kind of calling the nuclear bluff because there's a assumption that you know if we use conventional force it'll lead to escalation and we saw with the balakot attacks that that's not always the case so um and drones themselves have certain inherent advantage one is that they're pilotless so it reduces certain political costs and allows you to take greater risks so in terms of that there are there's an argument that says it'll it can affect stability of uh, certain conflict zones so just your perspective on this like what it how it impacts stability in south asia especially in light of this new thinking in the uh, indian administration so yeah, so you, there's definitely a shift when it comes to India's penchant to use force, uh, you know, uh, and you have seen that uh, particularly in the last 10 years, uh, you know. Uh, now, the argument regarding drones is basically that it allows decision makers to use force on the cheap. 
because at the end of the day, the retaliation would only be against the unmanned aerial vehicle. It would be shot down, but because it would be pilotless to be in layman's terms, uh, there are little uh, you know, costs as- associated with it. Uh, both in terms of human cost, cost, but also reputational costs. You know, downing a MiG, as we saw during the Balakot strike, uh, comes with huge reputational costs. Uh, and the ensuing crisis, ensuing crisis, which resulted with the capture of the Indian fighter pilot. Uh, you know, that kind of binds decision makers uh, into a vicious cycle of escalation. Okay, that might not be true. With drones, you know, because as you rightly said, they, you know, there's no human cost and therefore there are less reputational costs, uh, you know. Uh, so that is true, uh, you know, to a certain extent. So it might increase the penchant for the use of force. Now, there are two counterpoints to it. First of all is what military objectives can you achieve by deploying drones? You know, uh, so uh, can you, particularly in a contested airspace, uh, so given the advantages, there are also severe disadvantages, you know, because if you want to achieve a military objective, you might not be able to do that because the platform itself is not uh, capable enough to deliver, you know, that military objective to you. Uh, So that is one. The second is basically about contested airspaces. It's very difficult for drones until unless you're talking about cruise missiles and hypersonic missiles as uh, unmanned aerial vehicles. It's it's easy to to bring them down. You know what what the maximum speed at drones work basically. Uh, you know so uh, so if if your enemy has good air defense systems, the effectiveness of drones in delivering. Uh, in, 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 in basically carrying out use of force is limited, uh, you know. But I would say that they serve a different purpose. They serve a different purpose in terms of signaling, you know. Uh, particularly when it comes to use of force, use of force is not always employed for achieving military objectives. Sometimes a military objective itself is just signaling intent and willingness to punish, Okay, and in that sense, if the whole if the objective is to signal your willingness and intent uh, to use force uh, until and unless the adversary ceases uh, its hostile activity, uh, if it is signaling in the larger ladder of escalation, uh, then it does its job pretty effectively and cheaply. Uh, you know, so one can say that the use of drones might help in the signaling objectives in terms of uh, telling the adversary that we will not take, uh, you know, your subconventional, uh, you know, uh, tactics uh, hands down, but we will actually contest it. Uh, and it will depend upon your your reactions how this escalation ladder will unfold. So I think use of drones in that sense is is important for signaling, uh, you know, your intent and willingness uh, when it comes to use of force. But the effectiveness of it, uh, you know, I am not very sure. 
Um, okay, I'd like to change tracks a little now because we've talked a lot about military drones. And I want to talk about the civilian applications. Re- recently, the Indian government made various budgetary allocations and they're trying to build this drone ecosystem. But And they've also pursued uh, international partnerships, with, especially with Israel. So um, can you go a little bit more into the details of like the civilian application of drones and what, because we've seen the Indian government try to promote, especially in the past with uh, public sector enterprises, try to promote the use of technology, domestically produced technologies. So uh, can you talk about a little bit about the civilian applications and then where is the drone program in India headed, both in terms of like the public sector enterprises, but also now, as you mentioned earlier, which is the private sector and the startups that are that are coming into play. Right. You know, I think the civilian applications is the most interesting part of it, you know, uh, particularly if you see the kind of initiatives which have uh, which have taken place in the last two years or so. Uh, so there is major Indian startups which are developing drones uh, for applications in agriculture, uh, you know, particularly in terms of and uh, IFCO, the, the one of the major suppliers of fertilizers has used drones, uh, you know, for uh, for 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 pesticide control as well as providing fertilizers to crops. There's you know applications of drones. Uh, in crop mapping, in soil erosion. And there are a lot of startups in India who are actually, you know, looking at these. Uh, The other is, you know, just mapping and inspections. So National Thermal Power Corporation of India has used drones to inspect its site, uh, you know, provide security, as well as checking pipelines, oil and gas pipelines for leakages, so to say. Uh, You know, there are a number of other initiatives which came up during the COVID pandemic where, uh, you know, uh, new startups, uh, I'm forgetting the name right now, uh, but some of these startups have collaborated with government in Telangana, the Maharashtra government, the Goa government to deliver, uh, you know, uh, COVID vaccines uh, as well as get test samples, uh, you know, uh, from, uh, from rural areas, so to say. Uh, you know, there is a one Indian startup which is trying to build a heavy lift, uh, you know, uh, a drone which can carry up to 150 kgs of weight, uh, you know, uh, which when implemented would bring a logistical uh, revolution in India, uh, you know, particularly because, uh, you know, uh, loads which take up to two to three days uh, can be delivered in, you know, a matter of five to six hours, so to say. Uh, and I mentioned about disaster, you know, management. I mentioned uh, their role in geos, uh, you know, geospatial mapping, uh, you know, which, which is now a big, uh, big, big area, which is developing in India, particularly with the liberalization of geospatial mapping in India in the last two years. So the number of civilian applications are humongous, and that's why you see that the startup. Uh, you know, the startup ecosystem has uh, is thriving when it comes to unmanned aerial vehicles. There are 150 startups in India, uh, you know, particularly in Bangalore, uh, which are which are trying to get, uh, you know, a share of what could be a very big market. But most importantly, I would say 
uh, that the regulations have opened up. As I said, in 2015, there was no commercial activity allowed. In 2018, we liberalized a bit, but in 2021, we are one of the most liberalized, uh, you know, economies when it comes to uh, drone operations. Uh, you know, uh, that is one part of it, liberalizing the market, you know, so that it provides incentives uh, for private players to kind of jump in with all kind of applications. Um, and with the introduction of 5G, uh, you know, it would uh, it would also revolutionize uh, beyond the visual uh, applications, particularly of drones. Uh, you know, uh, that is one thing. The second thing is uh, basically, uh, you know, uh, the government is also trying to build this uh, ecosystem largely by providing incentives to domestic players you know so if you see the 2022 budget uh, no foreign companies are allowed uh, to uh, you know no imports on drones and drone products are allowed in india until unless they are for r d defense or for other uh, you know state enterprises like isro for so to say uh, you know so that is basically providing negative sanctions uh, and creating a market incentive. The third, I think, is also uh, the PLI, the production-linked incentives, you know, which last year uh, the government of India sanctioned something like 120 crores uh, for the private manufacturers to build drones, uh, you know, and providing tax breaks to these private players. So, you know, when it comes to regulation, you're liberalizing, when it comes to uh, you know uh, imports you're restricting imports um, but also you are also providing incentives to private players uh, you know uh, and lastly you're doing a lot of public private interface uh, you know so the idea forge uh, to give an example which won the contract for uh, you know uh, for the switch UAVs with the Indian Army uh, you know is a startup by Indians so to say, uh, you know, but uh, the Indian Army has given that contract to a startup in India, which tells you a lot about uh, the change in attitude of the Indian military, uh, you know, uh, 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 because the Indian military is was, was always considered to be looking uh, towards, you know, uh, towards foreign vendors when it came to their military equipment. Uh, so, you know, so there's a number of startups also working with Hindustan Aeronautics Limited and DRDO to develop new drone systems. So you see a lot of public-private interface. So I think those four are uh, the major changes which have occurred in India's drone landscape. And uh, they promise, uh, you know, we don't know how things will pan out in a sense, but uh, they, they are a promising start. And some of the results are already evident in a say but look at the end of the day what is most important is that you develop the entire ecosystem you know so uh, fundamental to some of these technologies is you know uh, microelectronics you know semiconductors uh, so when uh, so it's it's heartening news that a number of startups have have applied for you know licenses with the government to build semiconductors Foxconn uh, is building a facility uh, in India to build semiconductors. 
you know, and electronics have been a major, major uh, sector where the Indian government in last, you know, seven, eight years has given a lot of emphasis on uh, building the electronics infrastructure in India. So I think, you know, it's not just one, one sector, uh, you know, which would lead. Uh, so in a sense that drones are not uh, not manufactured in isolation compared to the larger industrial and scientific and R&D you know, ecosystem in India. Uh, so if you have, if you're making progress on 5G, if you're making progress on semiconductors, if you're mo- making progress on applications of AI, uh, you know, if you're making progress on sensors for that matter, uh, you know, uh, uh, across these sectors in industry, uh, then it provides, you know, greater interface, greater interaction, you know, greater uh, opportunities uh, for, you know, manufacturers of unmanned aerial vehicles in the country. Uh, because at the end of the day, you know, our product is basically, uh, you know, uh, consists of many subsystems. So until unless you can pro- produce those subsystems, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you are just trying to assemble stuff. And that's what you, India used to do without much value addition. So I think the whole focus on value addition is very, very important. And you can see that happening in India uh, in the last five to six years. I want to talk uh, finally just a little bit about what the drone industry sort of represents, which is a larger change, I think, that's happening in the, in India's defense ecosystem. There were a lot of policy reforms that were brought in uh, last year as part of like the Atmanirbhar Bharat, Bharat campaign and things like that. And now you see India focusing on exports also. And the most recent is the Brahmos sale to Philippines. So what is your uh, opinion of this, the new approach that the government has taken to foster domestic industry? And uh, do you see this succeeding or what are some of the challenges that the government will likely face? Like, yeah, you know, one simple answer to that is Rome was not built in a day. You know, so, you know, uh, I think much larger problem was the attitude, you know. So it's like a chicken act problem. You don't produce, but you also don't buy, you know. So uh, so what what needs to be done in this case? Then you are in a vicious cycle, uh, you know. Uh, so you're not able to, produ- the producers would say that we are not able to produce because there is no buyer. The buyer would say that uh, we are not able to buy because, you know, the producers do, um, uh, you know, are not up to the job. And that's what, you know, the Indian defense industry was caught up uh, this vicious cycle for almost 50, 60 years. I think much of it had to do with the larger management, uh, you know, particularly you need the armed forces to buy local stuff. And you also need the local suppliers to, uh, you know, to, 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 to produce what uh, is needed and to the quality of what is required by the armed forces. Now, there's always a compromise, you know, and you see uh, the Tejas to fighter aircraft as an example of that, you know, um, because technology is a process, you know, the Tejas fighter aircraft uh, was conceived in mid-1980s. It has taken us so much of time, uh, but at least we have a product now. Uh, you know, and there can be more modifications, ramification, you know, in, more modifications in that. And that's what you see with LCA Mark II and all that. Uh, you know, so 
So you have to, in some sense, uh, all of this has to come from the top uh, because organizations actually go after their own, own interests. The producers went after their interests. Uh, the, the users went after their interests. And we were caught in a vicious cycle. Uh, you know, where whatever we were producing was, uh, you know, not up to the mark. And therefore, the buyers would always like to go abroad. Uh, so much of the change in, and this change has come from the top in terms of what you can see, you know, the defense ministry coming down hard on both the scientific R&D institutions as well as the military, uh, you know, to to interact more, to buy locally but also produce stuff which is good in quality. Um, you know, so restructuring of the ordinance boards, the white elephants of Indian defense industry was a major step, so to say. Uh, you know, uh, and these indigenization efforts, you know, and that, that goes on with the larger defense reforms, which have also come from the top, particularly with the appointment of the chief of defense staff, you know, maybe theater commands tomorrow, uh, so much of the reform which is which is happening in Indian defense industry is actually happening from the top. And that's how it has happened all over the world. Uh, you know, the organizations never want to reform because uh, the bureaucracies, their first job is to perpetuate themselves. Uh, so I think it's a welcome reform in a sense, which you can see both uh, in, uh, in, in the management of... Uh, higher defense management, but also in terms of procurement, in terms of defense R&D, uh, you know, uh, uh, for the defense ministry to come at, with a list of equipment which uh, the Indian military can't buy from abroad and which needs to be built locally is a major significant step. Uh, because until and unless the forces are, 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 are forced to buy locally, uh, you know, the problem there was, you know, it is a twofold problem because... If the buyer is allowed, if the user is allowed to buy, uh, you know, uh, from foreign sources, it doesn't even have a stake in seeing that the local production is up to the mark, you know. So, uh, you know, they were not invested uh, in defense production, so to say. Uh, but once you are invested, then you are basically going uh, to to ensure as a user that the quality of products is 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 met uh, according to your requirements and that is the interaction we were missing uh, for a long period of time in indian defense industry and that, that i think is is actually happening you know uh, all the three wings the army air force and the navy uh, the navy was always very much you know from the very beginning uh, invested in indigenization from the leander frigates uh, they built in 1960s, uh, you know, uh, but the Army and the Air Force, uh, there is a significant change uh, I can see uh, in the disposition of the Indian military when it comes to uh, buying locally. Uh, and that will, over a period of time, help uh, in greater indigenization. And Brahmos is a major, major step in that sense. India is looking forward to selling the same to Vietnam, selling Tejas to Malaysia for that matter. Uh, you know, so India, so so more the exports are, uh, then you are basically into the, into, in, into, uh, you know, uh, uh, the cycle of competition world over, uh, you know, and that creates efficiency. Competition creates efficiency. The problem was that there was 
no competition uh, within, uh, you know, because of uh, the monopoly of uh, of the of uh, the public defense sector. Uh, but as well as there was no competition outside because the Indians were not selling anywhere. Uh, so I think, you know, uh, this this larger change in uh, the indigenous defense sector where you're not only competing within, but you're also competing outside is going to uh, provide more, much more efficiency uh, to India's indigenous defense production. Thank you, Yogesh, for sharing your insights and giving us a very comprehensive picture on this subject. Um, So thank you for joining us again. You were listening to South Asia Chat. To know more about our work, please visit us at isas.nus.edu.sg. You can also get the latest updates on our social media handles on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. 